How we do our work reflects how we think about God and his purpose. And the corollary to that is how we do our work reveals how we think about ourselves and our place in the universe. Is God sovereign? Is he sufficient? Is he our father, our provider, our protector? Do we trust him to lead our lives for our good? Do we find our identity, our meaning, our purpose and worth in him? Or do we look for that in ourselves? We live in a culture where individualism reigns supreme, a culture where the independence, rights, and preferences of individuals take preference, precedence over our responsibilities to the community and its needs. Robert Bella argued, Robert Bella with some associates argued in 1985, they wrote a book, uh, Habits of the Heart. He argued that the spirit of modern individualism promotes the idea of work as a means of private advancement rather than public contribution. He adds that this individualistic spirit will rend the social fabric of our society and erode our democratic institutions if allowed to have full sway in our American life. Why? The reason is that the dark side of individualism is selfishness and self-absorption. Without a commitment to a set of common values and a commitment, a determination to serve the common good, we become a culture of competing wants. A culture of competing wants. So Bella says that the meaning of work must change or we will rip apart as a society. Change how? It must change from simply private advancement to include public contribution as well. Now, Dorothy Sayers in 1949, in an essay called Why Work, uh, wrote, the habit of thinking of work as something one does simply and only to get money and position is so ingrained in us that we can scarcely imagine what would happen if we began to think about our work otherwise. And then she says something interesting. She says, during World War II, one of the great surprises we had in our lives is that we found ourselves for the very first time happy. Why? Because for the first time in our lives, we found ourselves doing something, not for the pay, not for the social standing, but for the sake of working together to get something done that benefited everyone. So she argues that serving the common good and not just ourselves actually makes us happier. Now, is what Bella says, what Dorothy Sayers says, is that really true? Is it really true that the way we think about and go about our work is really that important? I think it is. And I think it's true because our work is a calling from God. Our work is meant to reflect the nature and purpose of God in creation. Now, before we go any further, I want to remind us what we mean in our Work Matter series what we have meant by work, and what we mean by the common good. When we talk about our work, we're not just talking about our job, what we do for pay. 
we're talking about the totality of our work. Paid work and unpaid work, work in the home, work outside the home, work with our heads, work with our hands, all, all of the work that we do. And then by the common good, we mean whatever we do for others. Family, friends, neighbors, classmates, co-workers, the community at large. Work is not only to provide for ourselves and our families, but also, as Paul says in Ephesians 4.28, to have something to share with those in need. So work is one of the basic ways we follow our God-ordained social responsibilities. Now, we learned in previous sermons in this series that God created us in his image and commanded us to work as his representatives on the earth. We're to reflect the character and purpose of God in our work. We're to re represent the interests of God in our work. Now, 1 John 4, 16 says, God is love. Whoever loves, lives in love, lives in God, and God in them. Now, God called us to live in love in all that we are and all that we do. When we do our work as an act of love toward others, we honor God and reveal him in us. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We are God's masterpiece, that word, handy. We are God's handiwork. That's the word out of which our English word poem comes from. So we are God's masterpiece. We are his, the height of his creative expression. And what that looks like is that we do good works created for us in advance to do. God created us with the ability and the motivation to do good works. It's part of our creational DNA, if you will. Good works are also part of our God-ordained destiny. They are an intrinsic part of God's plan for our lives. He created us to do good works. He prepared us to do good works before we were even a cell in a body. Before the creation of the world, God had a plan for our lives that included good works to do. Jesus said that the first and greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, to love your neighbor as, your, as yourself. He said, on these two hang all the law and the prophets. What he's saying is that all of the Old Testament scriptures fulfilled in loving God and loving other people. All the scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, are fulfilled in doing that. Now, we spend more time at work, all work, paid and unpaid and so forth, more time at work than any other waking activity, right? So the primary way that we love God and our neighbors is through our work. What Robert Bella called 
Work as a public contribution is a big part of what Jesus means when he says, when he talks about loving your neighbor as you love yourself. God is a worker who serves people and enables them to flourish. In the beginning, we're told, Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it was good. He created order out of chaos. He created fruitfulness in place of the barrenness of the earth in its raw state. He beauty, diversity, life out of the deadness that was there. And then, so Genesis 1 is kind of a big picture view. Genesis 2 goes from panoramic view down to an intimate, intimate portrayal, an intimate picture of God at work in the lives of human beings. And I want to I read a portion of Genesis chapter 2, starting with verse 7. Uh, I'm not sure what page it is in your Bible, but if you turn to page 1 and then flip over a page, you'll probably find it in your pew Bibles in front of you, okay? Starting with verse 7 in chapter 2 of Genesis. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And skipping down to verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And then skipping to verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And God does that. So we see from these passages, God forms a man from the dust of the earth. He breathes in him the breath of life. He makes him a living being. He plants a garden for him. And this garden is, is, is a garden that's beautiful, pleasing to the eye. And it's a, God, it's a garden that, that provides for all his needs, good for food. And then God waters that garden and takes care of it and uh, shows him how to take care of it. And then he creates a companion for him, a helper for him. He fashions a wife for him, to, for him to be his partner in doing the work to which God called them. God created and cultivated a garden pleasing to the eye and good for food. He lovingly placed human beings in it, intentionally, lovingly place human beings in that garden. It's like what happens when parents are pregnant and they're preparing a place for the newborn child. So they, they create a space and they put all of their love, all of their thought, all their creativity to creating a space that's going to help their child be safe and secure and flourish. That's what God did in creating the Garden of Eden. He created as a gardener and as a father creating good and safe and secure and flourishing place 
for his children. He created a man and then he created a woman to be his companion and partner in this work. And I want to stop here for a moment. God said it is not good for man to be alone. Not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper for him. So listen to what Genesis 2 is saying. He's saying that God made human beings in such a way that they need help from other human beings. He created human beings in such a way that they cannot be self-sufficient. He made them to be dependent, interdependent upon one another. We were made to be helpers of one another. And that, that word here for helper is a Hebrew word, hezer. It in no way implies any kind of subordination, any kind of hierarchy. In fact, almost every time, every other time that that word is used for scripture, it's used of God. God is the helper, the hezer of Israel. It's not a word of subordination. It's a word of collaboration, cooperation, intimate companionship, interdependence, if you will. Now, why? Why did God make human beings this way? It's because he created them in his image. And God, in his very nature, is communal. God is one in three persons. God, God is one, but, he work, but he's also three separate and distinct persons in that composite, if you will, unity, perfect unity, perfect harmony. The Trinity works, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit work together in complete unity in harmony with one another. They work with and for one another to the benefit and flourishing of one another, if you will. When God says it is not good for man to be alone, part of the reason for this is because it is impossible. It's impossible for man alone to reflect the image of God. Let me say that again. It's impossible for man alone to reflect the image of God. God, by his very nature, is in community with himself in a trinity. Only humanity in community reflects God's image. John Wesley at one point said, a solitary Christian is as anathema to the scriptures as a holy adulterer. A person who tries to live self-sufficiently and doesn't see the people around him as gifts to him or to her. Missing the boat. Just missing the boat. It's when we love, serve, help, bless one another that we reflect the character of God most fully. So think about what God did. God created a place for humankind. He created a companion with whom 
Humankind could share life, and he walked with them in the garden as their companion and sustainer. In other words, God, as creator, expressed providential care for humankind. He worked for their benefit. He worked for our benefit to this day. God works so that we have everything that we need, including his presence with us, in order to flourish. That's who God is. God is a worker who serves people and enables them to flourish. And as God's image bearers, we reflect his character and purpose in our work when we serve others in a way that helps them to flourish. Does that make sense? Human work is meant to be an imitation of God's work, a participation in God's creation and creativity. Ruling, subduing, multiplying, causing plants to grow, making things with others and for us. This is what God does and what God gives as tasks to human beings. Now the fall, the fall came and affected every aspect of creation, including our work. Jean Vaith writes, this then is the human condition under the fall. Work is a blessing. Work is a curse. Work can indeed be satisfying since it is what we were made for, but it can also be frustrating, pointless, and exhausting. Work is a virtue, but it is tainted by sin. Spiritually, we rest. Physically, we work. Though we still have to work by the sweat of our brows, and though our work may still yield thorns and thistles, as we're told in Genesis 3, those who rest in God's grace, those who rest in God's grace, can know that he, in his creative power, in loving providence, is the one who looms behind the work we do. So what is good work? Work that is good is work that images God and work that is done for his glory. And the way that God is glorified through our work is first by doing our work as well as we possibly can. Doing it as skillfully and diligently as we possibly can. Paul writes in Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for human masters. Dorothy Sayers again says, the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him, she says, is this that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. Make good tables. Do your work well. Now second, good work is work that is done for the good of other people as well as for yourself. Work that is good is work that is helpful. If you're only doing your work for yourself, 
just to make money. From God's perspective, it isn't really work. You weren't given the skills and creativity you have to terminate as an end in yourself. You're giving them, yes, for yourself, but also for the good of the community. The measure of our work is contribution, not compensation. It's service, not salary. It's sacrifice, not status. Jesus says, he's talking to his disciples. They've just had an argument amongst themselves on who's going to climb the, the, the ladder of success among them. And so he says to them, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. You know this. But not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We're not to choose jobs and conduct our work simply to fulfill ourselves and accrue power. Being with God and called by God to do something is empowering enough, isn't it? God has called us to be with him with him in his work of blessing and flourishing. What could be a higher calling, a better calling than that? He's called us to be with him in this. What could possibly be a greater treasure than being with Jesus? Jesus is our treasure. And the call of God is our privilege, isn't it? So why would we do our work simply for those things? When we've been called to so much, something so much bigger and better. We are all called to be priests, to be called, we are all called to be ministers to the human community on God's behalf as his representatives. And Furthermore, God himself and his providential care for his whole creation is working through us in our human work. God gives us our daily bread. How does he do that? He does it by means of farmers. He does that by means of truck drivers who bring produce to market. He does it by grocers. He does it by bakers and cooks and waiters and all of the things that go into bring food to us. He does it by people who create the tools that enable all these other folks to do it. There are hundreds of people that God uses, thousands of people God uses to give us our daily bread. God does that, working through us. How does God protect us? He raises up people to be police officers and just judges. How does God heal us? Yes, there are times when he heals us kind of 
He just heals us. But most of the time, he heals us through doctors and nurses and the whole medical community. How does God teach us? God teaches, but how does he do that? He raises up people to teach, people to come alongside children and youth and adults. God does all of that through people. He creates beauty by means of artists and musicians. He proclaims his word by means of pastors and teachers. Now, our relationship with God is established solely by his grace, by his atoning work in Jesus Christ, by what Christ did for us on the cross. But then he sends us out into the world to live out our Christian faith in love and service to our neighbors. Now, Martin Luther, we've been talking about Martin Luther a number of times through our work series. Martin Luther taught that our works, that our work is not primarily about serving God. Luther said, God does not need your good works, but your neighbor does. Now, God is self-sustaining in the Trinity. He really does not need us to do anything for him. But he is pleased. He is joyful. He delights in the fact that his children serve and love one another. Just like human parents love it when their kids collaborate with one another and love one another. God loves that when we do that. He doesn't need our work, but he loves it when we serve one another. And it is very clear that our neighbors need our good works and they need, and we need theirs. Gene Vaith points out, God has chosen to work through human beings who in their different capacities and according to their different talents serve each other. So farmers grow food to provide, grow, you know, they, 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 they till the ground to grow food to sustain a neighbor's life. Craftsmen, teacher, lawyer, they do their thing to help one another. This is God's providential ordering of society. God made the world to work in this way so that we would be interdependent with one another. Work is the form in which we make ourselves useful to other, Leonard DeCosta says, in which we make, and in which others make themselves useful to us. Now, imagine this. Imagine that everyone quits working right now. Imagine everyone globally, seven plus billion people quit working. What happens? Well, civilized life quickly melts away. Food vanishes from the shelves. Gas dries up at the pump. Streets are no longer patrolled and the potholes in Worcester become lakes, right? Fires burn themselves up, out and everything with it. Communication and transportation services and utilities go dead. 
And those who survive at all are soon huddled around campfires, sleeping in caves, clothed in raw animal hides. The difference between a wilderness and a culture is simply work. It's work. Now, we got to get this. No work is menial. No work is unnecessary. No work is unimportant. It all matters. About six months before he's assassinated, Dr. Martin Luther King spoke to a group of students at Barrett Junior High School in Philadelphia. It was October 26, 1967. And he said to these graduating seniors who were going out into the world, if a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep streets even as Michelangelo painted, even as Beethoven composed music or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will pause to say, here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well. Here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well. When you do your job well, whatever it is, it matters. If you did not exist, if somebody didn't do your job, other people would suffer one way or another. It matters. Our vocation, our work is not played out just in extraordinary acts. The great things we will do for the Lord, the great services we will, we will provide, we envision for our careers someday. It, 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 it's played out in the realm of the ordinary. Whatever we face in the humdrum present, if you will, washing the dishes, buying groceries, going to work, changing diapers, driving the kids somewhere, going to school, doing your homework, hanging out with your friends, listening to somebody in need, whatever it is. This is the realm into which we have been called and in which our faith bears fruit in love. We are to actively love our neighbors. And by neighbors, I mean the people who actually live around us, the people we actually go by, are surrounded by on a daily basis. We're to, we're to actually love our neighbors in the here and now and in the day-to-day rhythms of our lives. Day-to-day of our lives. Now, I have a morning routine. I get up every morning at 5.15, I get up, I do kind of clean up, so to speak. And I go downstairs, put on a pot of coffee. And then I put in a load of laundry and I clean up whatever needs to be cleaned up in the kitchen, living room. And I used to hate doing that stuff. All of it, except for the coffee. But I love doing it now. You know why? Because I know that my wife comes down a few minutes later and sees a clean kitchen 
and here's the laundry going, and then she sees the pot of coffee already brewed. I know that it, she smiles, and it makes her day, begins her day right. And that, that makes my heart. I love to see her smile. And then before she goes, Jen, we, our daughter Jenna is still living at home. We have this routine too where before she goes, we gather together and we pray blessing and she goes off to her work way. And then Je- Leslie goes off to work and we pray blessing and she goes off and we, we pray for her. That's part of our daily routine, our daily work. It matters. It matters that we do this for one another. Through our work, we fulfill the call of God to belong to Christ and participate in his redemptive work in the world. Now, Nancy Piercy wrote in a book called Total Truth. The ideal human existence is not eternal leisure or an endless vacation or even a monastic retreat in prayer and meditation, but creative ever expended for the glory of God and the benefit of others. Calling is not just to go to heaven, but also to cultivate the earth, not just to save souls, but also to serve God through our work. For God himself is engaged not only in the work of salvation, but also in the work of preserving and developing his creation, When we obey this mandate, we participate in the work of God himself. Tom Wright, in a book called Surprised by Hope, said, what we do, what you do in the present, by painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself, will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly, a little more bearable, until a day when we leave it behind altogether. They are part of what we may call building God's kingdom. We, the church, are called by God to be the foretaste. In this world, in the here and now of our day-to-day life, of the next world which is to come. The primary way we now reveal the goodness of the world to come is through our work now. Our work is a calling and assignment from God. God works through us in our work, and our work is an opportunity to love and serve our neighbor. Our work matters. It matters to God. It matters to the flourishing of our world. It matters now. And it matters for all eternity. May God establish the work of our hands.